Let's pray one more time. Jesus, as we go into our topic tonight, talking about the Holy Spirit, would you send your Holy Spirit to uh, empower this topic? Because, Lord, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're really talking about you. You sent a personal replacement so that you could be as close to us now, even closer than you were with your disciples. And that's through the Spirit. So open this up to us tonight, we pray in your name. Amen. So we're rapidly nearing the end of our revival seminar together. We have a key phrase. Say it with me. It's not about what you do. It's about who you know and who you know will transform what you do. How do we spend time working on that relationship with Jesus? The Bible, eating the spiritual word for the purpose of knowing Jesus, not doctrinal study necessarily. Prayer for the purpose of communion, two-way communion with God, not just a long prayer list of 911 prayers. And sharing, not the contrived going out and trying to nab people for Jesus, but the natural bubbling over. The only fruit that's good fruit is natural fruit. Isn't that right? Today, we want to talk about what does the Holy Spirit have to do with all of this relationship stuff. We're going to start in John 13. After the Last Supper, Jesus says to his disciples, I will be with you a little while longer. Now, what did they expect? They expected him to set up the kingdom and be with them forever, right? So he says, I'm just going to be with you a little while longer. Whoa, what's he talking about? You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews a few days ago, Where I am going, you cannot come, I'm saying to you now. Now, this was a complete devastation to the disciples. This turns their whole ideas. They had been still arguing in the upper room over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. There's no kingdom if there's no king. This is absolutely devastating. They panic. Peter, of course, responds, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for your sake. Jesus says, will you lay down your life for my sake? Assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow this night inferred until you have denied me three times. And what is the very next thing Jesus says? Let not your hearts be troubled. And it's in the plural for the you-alls. Let not all of your hearts be troubled. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. That's troubling. Peter says, I'll die for you. Jesus said, no, you'll go belly up on me and deny me. That's troubling. So whether Jesus is responding here, don't let it bother you that you're all going to fall away from me tonight, or don't let it bother you that I'm going away, and probably the answer is yes, both. He says, now, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Literally, trust in God, trust in me. And it's in the present tense. Be trusting in God. Be trusting in me. That's what it's all about. Whatever's happening, we work on trust. We focus on trust. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. We're going to be apart for a while. I'm going to be up getting the place ready for you. Then I'm going to come and get you and take you there. This, again, completely bursts the bubble on their idea of the kingdom. And, of course, they don't realize 
that in just a few hours he'll be arrested and all the rest of the bubbles will be burst. And they think it's over, done, finished. Now, Jesus continues on a few verses later. He's helping them know that now that he's leaving, what's going to happen? Assuredly, I say to you, he who trusts in me, believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. What is he saying? My leaving will not diminish the work. My leaving will increase the work. Now that's a hard sell, isn't it? I'm going away and things will get better. They can't believe that, but Jesus says it. Jesus says my departure will launch this thing rather than tank it. And he goes on to say, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. So I'm leaving. I'll send a replacement. I'll be gone, but you won't be orphans because I'll come to you through a replacement. Now there's some interesting wording here. First of all, it calls the Holy Spirit here, at least in this translation, the helper. What's the word many of your translations have? The comforter. The word in the Greek is parakletos. Para is the little preposition from which we get the English word parallel, beside. And kletos is the noun or the adjective form of the verb kaleo from which we get to call. So a parakletos is a called alongside one. All right? One who's called to be alongside you. Now, who was initially the parakletos? Jesus. And that can be shown from this verse in 1 John 2, 1. Little children, these things I write to you in order that you might not sin. And if anyone might sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the word advocate there is parakletos. It's the only other place outside of John 14, 15, and 16 that that word parakletos appears. In order to have another parakletos, you have to have another first. Okay? So Jesus is the original parakletos. He's now gone up and he's with the Father. And he sends another parakletos that will never leave. He'll be with us forever. So Jesus literally tells the disciples, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How? Through my personal replacement, the other parakletos. A little while longer, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Wait a minute, I'm going to be gone and you'll see me? Yes, how? Through the Holy Spirit. Because I live, you also will live. That day you will know that I'm in the Father, and you and me and I and you, we're all going to be together even though we're not together. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will come, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. It's the, the, Jesus goes back and forth on this, right? I'm in the Father, you're in me. Uh, I'm gone, I'm here. But it's all through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the personal replacement for Jesus. This is even a harder sell. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. You're going to be better off without me. If I do not go away, the parakletos will not come to you. But if I depart, I'll send him to you. So notice, Jesus says, when I leave, this thing won't diminish, it'll take off. 
when I leave, you'll be better off with my replacement. And in order to understand that, we have to understand, we can add to that this verse again that we've already seen. These two verses show you'll be better off without me and this thing will take off greater works because I go to the Father. That makes no sense with the departure of Jesus unless we understand the Holy Spirit. Jesus is essentially saying, I believe, I have taken on human form. I can only be in one place at one time. As long as I'm here, this movement will stay local. I've got to leave and send the Holy Spirit who can cause this thing to go global. When I replace myself with the Holy Spirit, he can be with you, in you, all of you, everywhere, all the time, without any physical limitations. That means this thing will go global. It's going to take off when I leave. Now, in order to talk about the Holy Spirit, we've got to understand this gets us right into the mystery of the three one. The English word we use for it is trinity. It's a word that's not in the Bible, but what does trinity mean? It's a tri-unity. It's an attempt to use one human word to explain an infinite concept. (laughs) So if you have trouble with the word, don't worry about it. But the Bible clearly teaches a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the baptism, Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove, and the Father's voice says, This is my beloved Son. Jesus says, I will pray the Father, and he'll send you another parakletos, the Spirit of truth, who will be with you forever. Clearly, we have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, when you talk about the mystery of the three one, you're talking about a paradox. It is impossible to understand or explain because, well, I believe it's through the power of paradox that finite minds can take a peek into the infinite. Is God three or is God one? And the answer is yes. I refuse to argue over the word Trinity because it's not in the Bible. Again, it's that attempt to take an infinite Bible truth and cover it with one human word. But I do believe very clearly there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that seem to be three entities. Now, I understand paradox this way. It's like the clothesline principle. If I put a hook in that side, and I put a hook in that side, and then I string a line tight between, you can hang your clothes up and they'll dry and they won't be in the dirt, right? And the reason your clothes are not in the dirt is because of the forces pulling in opposite directions. It's the tension that holds up your clothes. If I relax the tension, your clothes are in the dirt, right? And in a way, what you see with something like the the subject of the Godhead, the three one, the three who are one, the one who is three, or Jesus being all divine and Jesus being all human all at the same time, these are impossible concepts for us to construct in our mind. But by using two seemingly incompatible opposite concepts, we're able to get something bigger than a purely finite understanding. Um, The truth is what is suspended on the tension between the two seemingly incompatible realities. The bottom line is, if you emphasize the threeness of God more than the one, you lose truth. If you emphasize the oneness more than the three, you lose truth. You just have to settle for both. And somehow the truth strings between those two concepts. God is three, God is one. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I kind of like to put it this way. The Father is always home. 
You phone in, he's there, he'll pick up. Isn't that right? He never wanders anywhere, he's there. Jesus, well, he was there, now he's here, now he's there. But he was God with us. And the Spirit, he's God in us. Now in the New Age thinking, it's all God in us, none God out there. In Christianity, where do we need God? Do we need him out there? Do we need him up in heaven? The big Father? Yep. Do we need him beside us in Jesus? Yes. Do we need him in us in the Holy Spirit? Yes. So what God does is he presents himself as everything that we need. God for us, Father. God with us, Jesus. God in us, Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is Jesus' personal replacement. The bottom line is what Jesus is trying to tell us is that we can have a closer walk with Jesus now through the Holy Spirit in us than the disciples could when they had Jesus with them. Now that's a hard sell, isn't it? And it was a hard sell to them. How long has the Holy Spirit been around? Since creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. You can go through the Old Testament. He's uh, talked about before the flood. He's with Joshua, Othniel, Gideon, Samson, Saul, David, and Ezekiel, and God's people. He's there with us. So the Holy Spirit's around in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit's around in the New Testament before Jesus' baptism. He's in John the Baptist, and he's in Mary, and Elizabeth, and Zechariah, and Simeon. And then what happens at Jesus' baptism? Where was the Holy Spirit when Jesus was on earth? When Jesus was in his ministry, to be specific. Look at these verses. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was baptized also. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. A voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down upon him. Now watch what John adds to this discussion in John 1, 32 to 34. And John the Baptist bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. I saw it happen. And he remained on him. Guess what that word remained is? It's the word abide. Okay? He abode on him. Now John says, I didn't know Jesus. They were cousins, but he never met. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him. Now what does that mean? Staying. The dove didn't light and fly away. Best I can say is the dove just melted into him. The dove did not leave. The Spirit came upon him and remained on him. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. We have to realize that while Jesus was in his ministry, the Holy Spirit was here, the Holy Spirit was in him, and Jesus functioned through the Holy Spirit in the same way we are to function through the Holy Spirit now. Jesus didn't do his miracles on earth as a God being. He did his ministry and miracles as a human being, dependent on the Father through the indwelling Holy Spirit. In exactly the same way we function now, Jesus functioned then. During Jesus' ministry, the focus wasn't on the Holy Spirit. The focus was on Jesus. And by the way, I believe when we are functioning as Jesus did, the focus will not also be on the Holy Spirit. The focus will be on Jesus. 
but that'll be the Holy Spirit's working. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was filled with the Spirit and returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness after the baptism. He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee after the wilderness experience. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus in that hour rejoiced in the Spirit. We find that the Spirit was active within Jesus and was the active agent through which Jesus ministered. And now Jesus promises the disciples that same Spirit will now come into them and they will end up doing what he did and exponentially more. I will pray the Father. He will give you another parakletos and this one will never go away. The Spirit will be here to the end. And of course... Jesus' last promise just before he left. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, I'm going to leave and what I'm going to leave is going to be better than me. I will send the replacement of the Holy Spirit. Can anything be better than Jesus? And Jesus says, yes. For you, the Holy Spirit is better than me. And through that Spirit, I will be in you even more intimately than I was with the disciples when I was on earth. Now this again was a hard sell. But here's what happens. The Holy Spirit shows up 10 days later on Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a noise, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What filled the house? It doesn't say the wind filled the house. It says the sound filled the house, right? Now, we can make really loud sounds these days. You know, we can get sound systems. I was at a men's retreat once, oh, about 25 years ago, in a stadium, a men's event. And they had put under the front of the stage a whole bank of subwoofers, you know, this high, the width of this room. And let me tell you, they could make noise. It was loud. Or you can get a bunch of jets to fly over and turn on the afterburners. It's loud. They couldn't make those kind of noises back then. The loudest noise they could make was get a whole bunch of people together and have them all shout. Or get a herd of horses or an army of horses. The thundering of the hooves, you know, that's the loudest they could get. But when God shows up, he can get really loud. And what you have is what sounds like a hurricane. But there's no hurricane. <laughs> It doesn't say there was a wind. It says there was the sound. And the sound of this hurricane filled this one house, which caused what? Everybody came running to see what was going on. God is good at getting our attention. And there appeared to them divided tongues of fire. And one sat on each of them. So you have a little flame just sitting there on top of the heads of people who are in the middle of the room that sounds like a hurricane's blowing through. You have wind and fire for the appearance of wind and fire. Just like on Mount Sinai. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You have the sound of the rushing wind, hurricane. You have the little flames of fire flickering on each head. You have Peter preaching in 15 different languages at one time. You have 3,000 getting baptized. Now, you're one of the disciples. The evening of the day of Pentecost, you are completely worn out from baptizing people. You baptize several hundred. And you go home and you're sitting down to debrief with the others at the end of the day. And what are you saying? This thing Jesus said about it being better without him than with him, we didn't see how that could be, but it's true. And I believe the reason Pentecost was such a big bang is that God had to wean the disciples off his personal visible presence. And when they got home at the end of that day, they knew exactly what he meant. His departure and things took off like they had never dreamed. Can you imagine what we would do if 120 of us here started out tomorrow, Sabbath, and by the end of the day, 3,000 had joined us? What would we do? They wouldn't fit in here. We wouldn't even know how to get them all organized. But you know what? God can handle that. Amen. I had a, a funny experience. So this is a bunch of years ago now. When uh, Falkenberg was the General Conference president. So what is it, 30 years ago? Anyway, somewhere back there. I remember he came to Redwood Camp Meeting, which is on the Northern California coast up near Eureka. Marilyn and I go up there for camp meeting every year. I've been there, I think this will be the 30th year in a row that I've gone to Redwood Camp Meeting. Uh, we lead worship, I do a seminar, and we meet friends once a year. We only see them. But I remember I was at Redwood Camp Meeting and Elder Falkenberg came through. So, of course, all the pastors were to meet at a certain place because the General Conference President wanted to talk to us. And I remember him saying, we have just finally gotten into China for the first time since the revolution in the 40s. And we're finding out what's happened to the Adventist movement in China after all these decades. And he said, we're finding that there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of Seventh-day Adventist Christians there. And he said, now the challenge we have is how to bring all of that under the organization. And I remember I kind of wanted to raise my hand. I didn't. But I wanted to raise my hand and say, well, Elder Falkenberg, why would we want to do that? God seems to be doing just fine. You know, we think we have to get everything under organization. If we had 3,000 tomorrow, we couldn't organize it. There's no way the pastor could handle that. And with me helping, we'd still be lost. But God can organize things. And when he takes off, things are going to go faster and bigger than we can wrap our minds around, much less our organization. Now, I believe in organization for one very important reason. I don't believe in disorganization. But God has plans bigger than our organization can fathom when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of things. And that's what happened on Pentecost. Things took off. And those timid disciples, <laughs> the next time they were hauled before the Sanhedrin, instead of Peter saying, I never heard of him, they're standing tall, right? 
There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And they said, what happened to these guys? These are new men, amazing and powerful. So where is the Holy Spirit now? Well, he came at Pentecost as promised. Jesus said he will abide with us how long? Forever. That means he's right here, right now, but he's waiting to be invited into our hearts. God is a gentleman. He never goes where he's not invited. And for some reason, I believe God has chosen to work with us on a day-by-day invitation basis. We don't lose him because we sleep for eight hours. But when we wake up, we need to invite him back in. Amen? It's a conscious daily relationship, just as a marriage is a choice every day to be exclusive for one another. So your walk with Jesus is a choice every day to be with Jesus and the Holy Spirit day by day. We should seek for the Holy Spirit, pray for the Holy Spirit, believe that the Holy Spirit is here now, but we must ask each day for him to come in. The descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church is looked forward to as in the future, but it is the privilege of the church to have it now. Seek for it, pray for it, believe for it. We must have it, and heaven is waiting to bestow it. The Holy Spirit is here. We just need to invite him in to our lives, our homes, our communities, our schools, and our teaching. Tonight I want to look at five primary works of the Holy Spirit. We'll just briefly go through each one. The Holy Spirit is here to convict us, convert us, cleanse us, complete us, and commission us. Let's go through each of those talking about what the Holy Spirit has for us. Number one, the Holy Spirit is here to convict us. Um, John 16, 7-11 says, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. If I don't go away, the Helper will not come, but if I depart, I'll send him to you. And when he has come, he will what? Convict. Now that word convict is a confrontational word. It means to reprove, to expose, to rebuke, to reprimand. Who does the confronting in the gospel business? The Holy Spirit. I think we need to remember that. It's not our job to convict people of sin. It's our job to point to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will convict of the need. And notice it says he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then Jesus explains what the Spirit is going to do in each of those three categories. Notice verse 9. He will convict of sin because they do not what? Trust in me. Now wait a minute. If sin in God's eyes is primarily behavior, why wouldn't he say he'll convict them of sin because they're doing the wrong things? But he doesn't talk about behavior, he talks about trust. He'll convict of sin, and what is the sin? Failure to trust in Jesus. And what's the byproduct of failure to trust? All kinds of bad behavior. He will convict the world of righteousness. Now, righteousness, that's all the things we're supposed to be doing, right? Often we think sin is what we ought not to be doing, and righteousness is what we're supposed to be doing. And yet when he talks about convicting of sin, he doesn't talk about what we're not supposed to be doing. He talks about a lack of trust. And when he convicts of righteousness, he'll convict of righteousness because these are all the things you're supposed to be doing. No, because I'm going to the Father and you see me no more. What? Jesus is the standard of righteousness. And any time we get our eyes on something lesser like behavior, we dumb down the standard of righteousness. The standard of righteousness is all the way up to the stature of the fullness of Jesus. 
So when the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness, what he does is he keeps Jesus in view. Jesus is not here, but through the Spirit, Jesus said, even though I'll be gone and you don't see me, yet you will see me. How? The Spirit will keep Jesus in view so we have a true view of righteousness. And thirdly, he'll convict of judgment. And again, he doesn't say judgment because you're going to stand before the judgment. He says because the bad guy's been judged. So I look at this and I can pray, Lord Jesus, today, point out any areas where I'm failing to trust. That's the root issue of sin. Please, Keep Jesus in front of my eyes so I don't end up with a lower standard of righteousness. And even though things may be going bad and don't look too good for the future, keep before my mind that the bad guy's already been judged. And I can stick with you even if it costs me my life because you're going to win, he's going to lose, and I'm going to be set free. Amen? The judgment is good news. No fear. The Holy Spirit is sent to convict us. When I was at Pacific Union College, one Sabbath morning, there was a baptism during church. And Pastor Morris Venden stepped into the baptistry with a couple. And when the couple appeared in the baptistry, we all kind of went, huh? Because it was a husband and wife who were leaders in the church, elders in the church, and department chairs and leaders at the college. These were godly people. And they're in the baptistry. And so Elder Venden said, uh, when he introduced the couple, he said, they have a few words they want to say to you before they're rebaptized. So the man spoke into the mic, and he said, I know what you're thinking. I wonder what they did that was so bad that they need to be rebaptized. He said, well, we did the very worst. And he paused. And then he said, now I know what you're thinking again. With whom and how often? What was the very worst, the man said. The very worst was we became convicted that we had been living our good lives apart from a personal daily relationship with Jesus, and that's as bad as it gets. We have known about Jesus, about truth, about lifestyle, but we thought it was about how we acted and what we did. We didn't understand until fairly recently that it's not about what you do, it's about who you know. We become acquainted with Jesus for the first time in all of these years of working within the denomination, attending this church, and holding positions of leadership. But finally, we're experiencing a daily, meaningful, ongoing, intimate communion with Christ that is changing our lives from within. And there's such a difference between what we were then and what we're experiencing now that we wanted to go public through rebaptism. We want everybody to know there is a difference. We don't just have to know about Jesus. We can know him and my wife and I are here to testify. The man said that he is worth knowing and that's why we're being rebaptized. Where did they get that from? The Holy Spirit came to convict them of sin. The real sin is, the root sin is, failure to trust in Jesus. Convicting. Secondly, the Holy Spirit comes to convert us. We went through this last Sabbath morning in the story of Nicodemus. Surely I say to you, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And remember, Nicodemus said, okay, how can I have it? And Jesus said, well, it's a wind thing. It blows through. And you'll know when it blows. And Nicodemus kind of desperately says, but how can it happen to me? And Jesus said, 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so the Son must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Holy Spirit is here to convert us, to bring us alive from death to life. Not just tell us what we need, but bring us to life, back into relationship. And the one and only thing we can do to cooperate with that converting aspect is what? Keep our eyes fixed on the uplifted Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict us. If he didn't convict us, none of us would ever know we needed Jesus, right? We'd know we needed something, but we wouldn't know what the answer was. So he convicts us. Then he converts us. We lift our eyes to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is able to make that click that brings the difference, get us on our way with God. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit comes to cleanse us, to make us whole and holy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how does he do that? But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, not by our good deeds, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. The cleansing here is both the rooting out of the old and the bringing in of the new. God accepts us the way we are, but he loves us enough not to leave us the way we are. He cleanses us. We do not cleanse ourselves. But man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his will. He possesses no power by which this change can be effected. The change can be made only by the Holy Spirit. No mere external change is sufficient to bring us into harmony with God. There are many who try to reform by correcting this or that bad habit, and they hope in this way to become Christians. But they are beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is where? With the heart. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead. It is the Spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the Spirit that the heart is made pure, through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. Notice all that transformation comes from outside in. I sit at the feet of Jesus. He sends his Spirit to transform me and my heart. Have you asked for forgiveness and cleansing and awakened the next morning and still felt unforgiven? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, Lord, forgive me for doing that, and I still feel guilty. We pray again, forgive me. And we pray again, forgive me. And weeks later, we're still praying, forgive me. When did God forgive you? 2,000 years ago. Every sin was handled on the cross 2,000 years ago. Forgiveness is already in the bank for every human being on earth. So when you ask for forgiveness, forgiveness doesn't happen. When you ask for forgiveness, God doesn't change his mind towards you and finally forgive you. When you ask for forgiveness, he sends through what he's just been waiting to send through because he's already done it. The difference when you ask for forgiveness is you're changing your mind towards God. He's not changing his mind towards you. So then, if you ask for forgiveness and you don't feel forgiven, what's the problem? You're not trusting. 
Let me take it a little different. And this will kind of lead us to the fourth work of the Holy Spirit. Every sin, even if it was fun, and face it, Satan makes some sins fun. They bite you afterwards, but he makes them fun. Every sin that you ever commit wounds you. You may not feel the wound at first, but it wounds you. It's like stabbing yourself with an ice pick every time you sin. Now, you're all stabbed up and bleeding. And you ask God to forgive you. Does he forgive you? Yes. And you're still all wounded and bleeding. Right? I'd like to challenge you the next time you ask for forgiveness and you're not feeling forgiven the next day, this time thank him for forgiveness and ask him for healing. That's why you're still hurting. It's not because you're unforgiven. It's because you need to be healed. He not only wants to forgive us, he wants to make us whole and holy. So just try that from now on. Admit your need, ask for forgiveness, thank him for forgiveness, and then say, Lord, would you please take me through whatever process you need to take me to heal me. I want to be made whole. I don't want to just be a mass of woundedness from now till the second coming. I'd like to be whole now and holy. Why? Because I want to experience life. And number two, I want others to see the life that is available. Whole and holy. He wants to cleanse us. And that cleansing moves into healing, which takes us to the fourth work of the Spirit, to complete us, to grow us, to mature us, Heal us, grow us, mature us. To each one is given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So when Jesus ascended, he took his trophies of the resurrection with him, those that raised at his death and resurrection. And then he sent the Holy Spirit down. And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints unto, literally, the work of ministry, unto the edifying of the body of Christ. He makes us the ministers of the church. Until when? Until we all come to the unity of the faith. We've got a little ways to go on that, don't we? And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect or complete or mature man, person, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And let me tell you, that's way higher than good behavior. That's cleansed on the inside as well and healed and completed. That's why the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness because he goes to the Father and we see him no more. The Holy Spirit keeps the fullness of the measure, the stature of Christ in front of us. Anything else is too low of a standard. That we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes now, not just to convict us and convert us and cleanse us, but to complete us and grow us up into the fullness. Mature and fruit-bearing. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, literally long-suffering, much better word than patience here, Kindness, I think the best translation there would be graciousness. And then goodness and faith, trust or trustfulness. And then gentleness, the best translation there, it's the word for meekness. 
It's the word for humility. And then finally, self-control is actually the word inner strength. We think of self-control. Man, i got to get control of myself. No, he's got to get control of me by pouring his power inside so the strength comes out in new living. Now, notice it says the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit does not parcel out these fruits. He is the fruit. And when you get the Spirit, you get them all. It's kind of like I looked up on uh, the Internet, the ingredients of a banana. One cup of mashed banana. Mash that banana in the cup. All right? Get a full cup of it, you have 51.5 grams of carbohydrates, 2.5 grams of protein, 0.7 grams of fat, and so on. Vitamin A, C, calcium, magnesium. I shortened the list by 50%. Now, if I eat a banana, I do not get the option to say I want the carbs but not the protein. I'll take the A but not the C. I'll take the calcium but not the magnesium. I'll take the potassium, but I don't want that phosphorus, you know, or whatever. When you eat the whole banana, you get the whole enchilada. You got that? You get the whole thing. And when you get the Holy Spirit, you get the whole thing. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, graciousness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and inner strength. You get the whole thing. What is this growth all about? We have come to believe that the growth in the Christian life is not growth in behaving better, but it's actually growth in the consistency of our dependence and surrender. Surrender. That's a bad word, isn't it? In war, the one who surrenders loses. In business, the one who surrenders loses. In sports, the one who surrenders loses. In games, the one who surrenders loses. And then we come to spiritual matters, and the one who surrenders wins. It's hard to think, right? Morris Venden's son, Lee, got into scuba diving in high school. Lived there at La Sierra University, and he'd go down to the coast with his friends to the ocean, and they'd scuba dive. Get those tanks on and the wetsuit and all the weight belt and the regulator and the air hose and everything, and they could go underwater for 30 to 45 minutes and go down and look at great stuff down there. And Lee liked it so much, he wanted to take his dad. Now, Maury said he had about as much interest in scuba diving as in swallowing gravel. But when your teenage boy wants you to do something with him, you go. So Maury said he went down to the ocean with his son and his son's friends had put together all the stuff they needed, the wetsuit, the tank, the regulator, hose, mask, fins, weight belt, and flotation vest. Oh, that flotation vest. So that if something happened, you could pull the ripcord and up you go, right? So they put it all on Morris Vendon and themselves, and they all headed out into the surf. Now, it had been stormy. The waves were a little high, and uh, the water was very murky. Couldn't see very far at all, just a tiny bit. And, you know, when you're walking in those fins, you know, he's trying to walk into the water. And Lee said, he told his dad, now, the, the waves are crashing there, but all you do is just duck down underneath, and, and it's smooth down there. And so as they're getting into the water a little bit deeper, up to their waist or so and beyond, Lee said he looked back at his dad and he saw something he'd never seen before. He saw utter terror in his dad's eyes. And his dad was just going like this, no. 
I'm not going in there. And so finally Lee said, Dad, just go back to shore. We're all suited up. We're going to go under for 30 minutes. We'll be back. Just enjoy the beach. And down they go. About 30 minutes later, their air was used up. They came up, and they got to shore, and here was Morris Vendon laying on the beach like a beach whale. I mean, he's literally laying on his tanks launched over on one side. And his fins were straight up, and he was where the surf was still washing up on him. And Lee came up to his dad, and he said, Dad, what is wrong? What happened? And Morris Vanden said, I thought I was going to die. Well, what happened? He said, well, I turned around to swim back to shore, and the water was like a conveyor belt. I was getting absolutely nowhere. And he said, I swam, and I swam, and I swam, and I couldn't get back to shore. And I began to panic, and I realized that I was getting completely worn out and it wasn't going to be long, and I was just going to sink to the bottom, use up the rest of my air, and die, and everyone would say, isn't it too bad what happened to Boris Vendon? (laughs) And he said, finally, I became so exhausted, my body was so depleted, that I had to give up, and I knew I was sinking to die. Now, this is real. Think about the panic here. And he said, when I gave up and realized this was the end for me, I was going to sink to the bottom and die. My knees hit the bottom, and I was in water only this deep. (laughs) And he said, I literally crawled to the shore, and I just got here when you found me. He learned something very important. When you surrender, you win. It doesn't make sense anywhere else in our lives. You know, we teach our kids, you know, little Johnny, he tied his shoes all by himself, right? He zipped up his jacket all by himself. He drew that picture all by himself. Did anybody help you? Nope, I did it all by myself. And we reinforce this idea of doing things all by ourselves. And Frank Sinatra sings, I did it my way, and America cheers, because that's the American way. We don't take a handout from anybody. We do it ourselves. And then we come to the spiritual realm, and God says, surrender, and we say, we don't know how to do that. Jesus came to teach us how to depend on a power outside ourselves. If there's ever anyone who could have depended on himself, it was Jesus, and yet he lived his entire life in absolute, 100%, 100% of the time, surrender on his Father. It's a hard lesson for us to pull in, especially for us pastors. I've heard people say, we tried this, we tried that, we tried the other thing, finally we had nothing else to do but pray. What might have happened if we'd have prayed first? God is waiting for us to surrender. Growth in the Christian life is not growth in behaving better. It's actually growth in the constancy of surrender and abiding. As I depend more, abide more, God will be in charge. My behavior will follow. Israel in the wilderness, God was leading them through lessons of dependence. And boy, did they have a hard time learning it, right? And we look back at those poor souls and we say, man, they were dense, right? They were stubborn. They were hard of hearing, hard of learning. Uh, We're no better, folks. We're no better. You know, you can't be a little surrendered any more than you can be a little pregnant. It's pretty much on or off. The Holy Spirit's work is to complete us, to complete our dependence and surrender of leaning on Jesus all the way, all the time. 
No, we're back to a relational focus, not a behavioral focus. Constancy of dependence, intimacy, communion. That's the focus of our spiritual life. God then takes on the responsibility of behavior transformation and the constancy of new behavior. We get a new heart, and that new heart will start pouring out new stuff as long as we're letting it happen by depending on Jesus. So the Holy Spirit comes to convict us, to convert us, to cleanse us, to complete and grow us. And finally, the Holy Spirit comes to commission us. And this isn't to make us holy. This is to make us useful. Jesus said, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The holy wind and fire. Wind and fire. What came at Pentecost? The sound of wind and fire. The purpose of the commissioning was to set the disciples on fire to change the world, to make them useful for Jesus. The Holy Spirit's there to make us holy, but he's also here to make us useful. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be witnesses, useful to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And my leaving will not slow you down. It will kick this thing off. We need to dream dreams big enough to need God. I have a problem with that. I really do. I'm far too practical. Our little school, uh, we have a one, we're a one-church constituency for our grade school. Our church is responsible for the whole thing. And 10 years ago, we were struggling along in debt, barely able to pay the bills, sinking 70 students. Five teachers, what do we do? Today we have 170 already registered for next year. We are bursting at the seams. We've had to go one teacher per room instead of, you know, uh, two grades per teacher. Now we're one grade per teacher. Uh, we've got auxiliary staff, and we don't have any room. They've taken over the entire gym and fellowship hall complex that we have. <laughs> we had to move into the gym for our fellowship hall because we turned it into a music room and a another classroom. Uh, we need to build a building. And we're a blue-collar church without any money. I don't have anybody to write the $10,000 checks or bigger. We give our $100 here and there. How do we build a building when we don't have money, when the economy could turn and the school could go down? You know, what do you do? And I'm not a good one at visioning that. I want to be practical. So I tell them, well, whatever we do, we've got to make sure we don't take on a mortgage because we can't you know, service them. And I'm, I'm thinking control. I'm thinking what we can do. I'm thankful I've got a principal that's got a little more of visioning. So I'm going to let him vision that, and I'm going to encourage. And, and uh, we need to dream dreams big enough to need God. God wants to use us in ways bigger than we'll ever imagine. To make us useful, God doesn't just make us utilitarian. He does greater things than we can even imagine. If we're depending totally and letting him uh, empower. I've heard a story. I like to back up my stories. I like to be able to go and find the story. I can't find this story. Lee can't find this story. But Lee said he heard it from someone he trusts. Okay? So that's where the back of this story is. A young couple, not too long ago, below average economic status, stumbled across the Bible and started reading, and they were converted. Click. 
Jesus became indispensable to them, and the Bible was the way they met Jesus. And then they heard about a country where it was against the law to have a Bible, to import Bibles, or to teach from the Bible. And they said, isn't that sad? There's an entire country of millions of people who don't have access to the very thing that turned our lives around. And that young man prayed to God. He said, God, if you'll give me the resources, I will deliver a million Bibles to that country in the next year. Well, a buck a Bible, that's a million bucks, right? How's he going to get them in? How's he going to get them? How's he going to get them there? How's he going to get them in? And you know, I think when we pray a prayer like that, God sits up on his throne and says, Gabriel, did you hear that? He wants resources. Let's go. And the way the story goes, he delivered over a million Bibles to that country in the next year, and by the end of the year, he was invited to dinner with the king and the queen in the palace. Now, I wish I had that story documented, but Lee said he heard it from someone that he trusts that knew what they were talking about. So there you go. At least it says, we need to dream those kind of dreams, don't we? I mean, what kind of a dream could you dream about the gospel in Midland and around in Michigan? Me out in Arizona with a city of four million people around me in Phoenix. Where do you start? We need to dream big, 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 big dreams that God will make us useful in ways that are greater God's faithful messengers are to wrestle with God in earnest prayer for a baptism of the Holy Spirit that they may meet the needs of a world perishing in sin. God told 11 guys to take the world. Isn't that what Jesus told them? He told 11 guys, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you're going to take the world. And the New Testament says they did in one generation on foot without mass communication and without PowerPoint slides. If you know what I mean evangelism, our typical way. They did it. They did it. Spiritual gifts, amazing things that God wants to give us. Concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. Differences of ministries, the same Lord. Diversities of activities, the same God. There's the three one again. Spirit, Lord, Jesus, and God the Father. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for what benefit? The profit of others all. You know, I'm going to do a real fast spiritual gift seminar right now in the next three minutes. I believe there are different levels of spiritual gifts. There are things that we can do as humans that are humanly possible, right? Like, you know, build a house, speak Spanish, play the piano, whatever. Some of those things we've learned to do. (laughs) Some we haven't, right? But what we can do that we've learned to do, the Holy Spirit can empower for eternal good. That is spiritual gifts. Secondly, there are things that are humanly possible that we haven't learned to do. I don't speak Spanish. I do play the piano. Okay? Maybe you speak Spanish and don't play the piano. All right? So there are things that we can do that we haven't learned to do. And you know what? The Holy Spirit can enable and empower both of those. There's an old pastor in our conference. He finally retired for the third time in his mid-80s. And he's always raising up new churches somewhere. And he went to inner America somewhere in a Spanish-speaking country. And he was speaking through a translator. Never spoke a lick of Spanish in his life. He is bilingual, but he speaks Armenian (laughs) and English. 
And uh, after the sermon, a young man came up and said, why did you have a translator? You were speaking perfect Spanish. Well, he never could speak Spanish. He still can't speak Spanish. But when God wanted Spanish, he could make Spanish, right? I don't know if it's the gift of tongues or the gift of ears, but it got the communication across, right? And it said something about the power of what God is doing. So that's a spiritual gift. When God lets you do something you can't do. And then there's the third layer, things that are humanly impossible, like healing the sick and raising the dead, that we can't learn to do even if we tried, and the Spirit can enable and empower those as well. Now here's my point for tonight on spiritual gifts. We generally think of spiritual gifts as line number three. When the Spirit comes and gives me spiritual gifts, we'll do miracles. I'd like to suggest that 99.9% of spiritual gifts happens on line one. God takes the you that you are with the abilities you have that you've developed and the skills you have and he turns those on with supernatural power to make a difference for eternity. And every once in a while, if he needs line two or three, he'll make it happen. But you may go through your entire life and never have line two or three happen for you. That doesn't mean you don't have spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts is God taking you, the unique you, and putting you to work in amazing ways. I like this acronym, which I stole from someone else. Spiritual gifts. Uh, You're a unique person. You have unique spiritual gifts. You have a unique heart passion, unique natural ability, unique personality type, and unique life experience. We could have the same spiritual gifts, but we'd have different heart passions, natural abilities, and personality types and experience, right? Everybody is absolutely unique. And on God's team, everybody's on the team and nobody's on the bench. And there is a unique place for you. God has things he wants done through you. On line one there, what you can do, have learned to do, he wants to empower to make a difference for him. I believe strongly in spiritual gifts. God wants to commission us through the Holy Spirit to do a real work for Jesus on this earth. So the Holy Spirit comes for what? To convict us, to convert us, to cleanse us, to complete and grow us, and then to commission us to do the greater things that he said would be done after he left. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to teach and to guide, the helper, the comforter, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. I pray for that every night when I get up to speak. I've learned a lot of stuff, but man, the memory just isn't quite as good as it used to, right? Plus, I will tell you, on a consistent basis, I end up preaching things that are new ideas to me. In fact, I've been known, back before I used these kind of notes, electronic, have my paper notes, I've written down a word quick. (laughs) I don't want to forget that, right? New insights come. The Spirit gives something on the spot. That's exciting. That's exciting. The Spirit gives an energy, teaches, brings to remembrance, energizes us. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus said, but you can't bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He won't speak on his own authority, but what he hears, he'll speak, and he'll tell you things to come. He'll glorify me. He'll take what is mine and declare it to you. So God promises the Spirit to guide us into truth, keep us on track with truth, bring us new truth, give us what we need on the spot, in the moment, the answers we need and the words we need. 
Have you ever been in one of those situations where somebody asks a question that you don't have an answer for and all of a sudden words start coming out of your mouth that you hadn't planned? I've had that happen. I did tell you the one story. I never forget this one. The little teenage girl who said to me, how can I love a God who says serve me or die? And I sent that millisecond prayer up, God, I need a simple answer for a 15-year-old. And zinging through my mind went the phrase, God doesn't say serve me or die. He says you're dying. Serve me and live. And those words came out of my mouth, and I said, i got to remember that one. I don't want to forget that. That was from the Lord. God can give us what we need at the moment we need us. I love the story of uh, a man that was a friend of my cousin Lee's who was studying for his anesthesiologist boards. And there was one area in the test that was coming up that he was studying for that he just couldn't seem to wrap his mind around. And he was studying it late into the night before the boards being the next day. Finally, he had to give up. And he went to bed and he prayed, Lord, I really feel you've called me into this work. I think this is what you've told me you want me to do with my life. And I can't seem to get this one area. And if I don't pass that tomorrow, I won't be able to become what I believe you've called me to be. You're going to have to deal with it. And he went to sleep. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he was in a classroom. And an angel walked in the classroom and walked up to the blackboard and, and wrote something out on the board and explained it and looked at him. And when he got it, he wrote something else and looked at him. And this happened for quite a few items. And then he woke up. And he was thinking, oh, man, if it was only that easy. <laughs> he went in to take his boards. And on the part that he was struggling with, Every question was exactly what the angel had explained on the board. And he passed. Had a career in the area that God, he felt, was leading him to. Of course, Lee's question to him, did you tell the proctors of the test that you cheated? <laughs> but I don't think it's cheating when the Holy Spirit comes through, right? If the Holy Spirit comes through, yahoo. When you're in a tight spot, way over your head, what does Jesus say? You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. And when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you're going to say. It'll be given to you in that hour because it's not you who speak, but whom? The Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. The Spirit comes to teach us and guide us. The Spirit comes to intercede and commune. Likewise, the Spirit, Romans 8, 26, helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I wish I could give you an illustration for this right now, but I'm not equipped to do it. In order to do it, we'd have to get that big ladder I see back there, and we'd have to stand it up. Because I did this in my church once, and it got their attention. The word the Spirit helps us. The word help. The word help is a combination of three words in the Greek. It's soon anti lambano. You'll remember that, right? Soon is the preposition for together. A synagogue, a gathering place. Soon is together. Anti is against or in place of. And lambano is to receive. Together against receive. And the way I illustrated it is that. We stood a, just a straight ladder up, not an A-frame, just a straight ladder. And I got two guys on each side, and I had them grab on. Now, they were together against, right? They were working against each other, 
and receiving, grasping, holding. And I went up to the top of the ladder. Believe it or not, that ladder is more stable with two guys on each side than it is leaning against the wall. Now, nobody in my church will believe that. But I've been up there. I know what I'm talking about. I change light bulbs that way. And they say, what? I say, yeah, four guys get on here. We'll go up and change that light bulb. It works. It's a lot more stable if I wanted to change that light bulb that way than if I lean it against there and try and go up. Get four guys. Of course, you don't want four third graders, but... The Spirit grabs on with us in our weaknesses. We're hanging on for dear life, and the Spirit grabs on and makes it solid. Because we don't even know how to pray, but He intercedes for us. Now, I've heard this explained that somehow the Spirit takes our prayers and helps God understand them. I don't think God needs help understanding my prayers. I believe what this is saying is that the Spirit reads my heart. And when I don't even know what to pray, or my prayer is completely off track on what I really need, the Holy Spirit reads the real need. God reads the real need. And God responds to the real need. That's why sometimes His answer doesn't fit my request. But I can count on the Holy Spirit to get my heart and God's heart together. And to bring what I need, even if it's not what I know I need. The Holy Spirit is here to help us live and dwell, or to dwell and live in us, I should say. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells or literally houses in you? We are God's temple. He lives in us. And some of us have some pretty cluttered up temples. Isn't that right? we got some closets with some stinky stuff in it, you know, that we really like. We've got clutter all over the place. Which brings me to the subject of lifestyle issues. You know, sometimes you ask what Adventists believe, and people say, well, we don't eat or drink this, and we don't go or do that, and we don't watch or participate or wear that. And it sounds like it's all about behavioral focus and heavily legalistic I want you to think about lifestyle issues. The Holy Spirit does want to come in and clean up our lifestyles. Why? Now, all of us have these cell phones, right? And I was way out in the middle of um, the Chippewa Nature Center. I think it was yesterday morning. And uh, taking a walk with uh, Dave out there. And uh, I, I needed to download something because I I needed it there so that I could make a response to someone. It wouldn't come through. And then I looked up, and I had one bar, (laughs) and it was going on and off. So what's the problem? I need a better signal. Now, what do you want to have between you and God? One or two bars or four or five bars? We need four or five bars, right? We need full strength. And when we're cluttered up, when our brains are cloudy because our physical beings are messed up and we put the wrong stuff in, either physically, food and drink, spiritually or mentally, what we watch and hear, and we got all this junk going on in there, we got one bar maybe, maybe less than that. Why do we want to clean that up? So we can be saved? No, we want to clean that up so we can have communion with God on a five-bar level. We don't want to settle for four or three or two. I think that's the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. 
The foolish ones were willing to go along with a couple of bars. <laughs> but that wasn't enough when the big moment hit, right? We need to be five. We need to be all the way on. I think there's a better reason to uh, clean up our act than to just live five to ten years longer. You know, we often say, as Adventists, we live five to ten years longer. That's good, but those need to be quality years. The biggest reason to clean up our lives, both physical health, emotional and mental health, what we watch, what we hear, what we do, where we go, what we wear, what we eat, what we drink, is so that we can have five-bar communion with God and not have a cluttered interaction. Just to illustrate that, is there anybody here who likes M&M's? You like M&M's? I'm going to ask you to come up. Can you come up front? I got a package for you right here. I want you to come down to the front. I just want to illustrate something with this. Now, this is the sharing size. Okay? Which means you can share this with others, but you're going to get to eat some first. So just come on right down here to the front. And I've opened up a brand new package. Okay? These are, these are good M&M's. So come right down here to the front. Come right over here so people can see you. Now, I'm not going to give you too many of these right now, but I will give you the whole thing later on. So what I want you to do is I want you to just put those in your mouth and, and, and eat those right now, just standing right here, all right? Those pretty good? Oh, yeah. They're really sweet, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Enjoying those? I need you to eat them up. We don't have too much time. Okay. All right. Now, do you like orange juice? Okay, now having eaten those M&M's, here is a brand new... Oh, we should shake this up. Oh, Let me yeah. put the lid on here. Okay, now I want you to take a big swig of that. Oh, he's, he's faking it really good. Pretty sour, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I like the sour stuff too. Why was the orange juice sour? Because of the sweet. You had too much sweet. You can take both of those back, but don't eat in church, Okay. <laughs> But that's the sharing size, so you can share. All right? What's the point there? Now, he kept a straight face. Last time I did this, when the young man took that swig of orange juice, his face just lit up, you know? Now, is orange juice sweet? But if you've just eaten M&Ms, orange juice is sour. And if we put too much of the high-concentrate wrong stuff in our eyes, our ears, our mouth, anything... And then we sit down to read the Word of God. It's pretty sour. Have you ever watched a movie, an exciting movie, and then tried to read your Bible before going to sleep? The car chase is going on, and they're after the bad guy, right? And you can't get your mind to calm down and just commune with God. I tell you, a few times it's happened to me, I've watched something that was wholesome. But for the next four days, I was trying to find the bad guy. You know, every time I try to read my Bible, that movie starts playing. It might have even been a good movie. But let me ask you something. Well, let me, let me put it this way. We ask the wrong question. We often ask, well, what's wrong with it? Wrong question. 
We need to ask, does it in any way interfere or diminish or inhibit my ability to focus on the things of God? That's the relational question. Not what's wrong with it. There's some perfectly good things that God may say they got to go because they're in the way of our relationship. And you know what? It may be something he's let somebody else have because they can handle it and it doesn't get in the way. Just because God tells you to drop something out doesn't mean you need to tell somebody else they got to leave it off too. They got to have their own walk with God. You got to have your walk with God. We need to listen to the Holy Spirit because I think he will quietly tell us that is not helpful. Set that aside. Because it's getting in the way. It's diminishing the bars on your cell connection. And even if it's a good thing, if it diminishes the bars. Uh, last illustration on that, and we'll move on. When I was about to uh, marry Marilyn, her father said to me one day, you know, when you marry my daughter, all other women will not become ugly. Just think that one through for a minute. When you marry my daughter, all other women will not become ugly. So what makes the difference? It's the choice to focus on this relationship. And to set aside anything that would diminish or inhibit this relationship. So if some other woman comes by who looks good, do I say, being with her would be wrong? That would be true. But you know what the bigger problem is? Heading that direction would hurt this relationship. I choose this relationship. I choose Jesus over anything, even if it's something I enjoyed and there's nothing wrong with it. If it gets in the way of Jesus, I've got to let it go. Does that make sense? And I believe the Holy Spirit, when he moves in and makes his housing in us, he will show us what needs to be cleaned out and what needs to go. And sometimes we'll say, but what's wrong with that? And he'll say, because it's getting in the way of the relationship. It needs to go. Jesus needs to be here. Through intemperance, Satan works to destroy the mental and moral powers that God gave to man as a priceless endowment. Thus it becomes impossible for men to appreciate the things of eternal worth. Through sensual indulgence, Satan seeks to blot from the soul every trace of the likeness of God. And the Holy Spirit comes to abide and stay forever. I'll pray the Father, he will give you another parakletos, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he what? Abides. And what did Jesus say? Abide in me. If you abide, you'll bear much fruit, and the Spirit will abide forever. It's all about abiding. He comes alongside to help us. One final story, and believe it or not, I actually have checked this story out, and it's apocryphal, but I'm going to tell it anyway because I like what it says. The story is that Booker T. Washington was once struggling through the rain with two heavy suitcases heading for Grand Central Station down 42nd Street in New York. And as he's struggling along, every once in a while having to stop, wondering if he's going to make the train, some voice comes up alongside and says, we appear to be going the same direction. Let me help you. He picked up one of those suitcases. They made it to the station. And when he was about to get on the train, Booker T. Washington said, Sir, what is your name that I might know whom to thank for this kindness? And Booker T. Washington is reported to have said, That is the first time I met Theodore Roosevelt.
Believe it or not, that story actually happened in Boston. It wasn't Teddy Roosevelt, but it was Booker T. Washington. But I love the line. I love the line. We appear to be going the same direction. Let me help you. When we are headed in the direction of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes alongside the parakletos. He comes parallel. He's called to be beside us. And he comes along and says, we appear to be heading the same direction. Let me help you. The Holy Spirit prods us with the emptiness of life without Jesus. The Holy Spirit lets us feel the lack of satisfaction when we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong places. The Holy Spirit points out emptiness and then he points to God, to Jesus, who alone can fill that hole in our lives. The Holy Spirit will abide with us forever. We dread the days of age and infirmity. We dread the difficulties of life. We dread the economy uh, and the fragile bubble collapsing. We dread terminal illness. We dread relationship breakdown. But the Holy Spirit will walk with us through it all. We are going the same direction. Let me help you. He will take up his residence and dwell in you until one day you get to take up your residence and dwell with him. He'll be there as truly as Jesus and the Father will be there. I believe the Holy Spirit is actually better than Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you promised a replacement. May we not take this thing casually. May we daily invite your Spirit in. And I pray that your Spirit will come in and get about that work of convicting and converting and cleansing, of completing us and of commissioning us. Lord, may we be useful the way you said, greater things even than Jesus did. You want to do great things through your church. And it only comes when we are filled with your Spirit. Thank you for sending a personal replacement so that we can be even more intimately connected with you, Jesus, now than your disciples were then. We invite your Spirit in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.